you are listening to The Truth Tank. I am your host, The Tank. If this is your first time listening to The Truth Tank, welcome. And if you're coming back for more, welcome back. I do apologize if I do sound a bit strange in this episode. I've had a cold last week or two. And it's not Rona, if you're wondering. It's just a cold. Tonight's episode is going to be the third and final part of the Crowleton mystery. It's been a while since we've visited the lost colony of Roanoke. It may have gotten lost in the flow of podcasts over the last couple of months, but I wanted to round out that series before the end of the year. If you haven't listened to parts one and two of the Crowleton mystery, I suggest you go ahead and do that now. Otherwise, this episode is not going to make a lot of sense. Before we go into tonight's show, let's have a recap of part two of the Crowleton mystery. Where we last left off, White had returned to the island three years later to find it abandoned. He found the word Croatan carved into a fence post and the word Crow carved into a tree nearby. The village was completely grown over. The chests that were buried when White had left the first time were dug up and some personal items were missing. There were no signs of a battle, struggle or any type of fire damage. White also didn't find a Maltese cross above the word Croatan or the word Crow. This was the agreed upon distress signal if the colony had to leave under duress they were to carve a small Maltese cross above the word indicating whoever found the village that they had left due to a threat. White had assumed the carved post meant that they had gone to live with the Croatoan, a native tribe that was not too far away from the original settlement. The first part of the show will be looking at the expeditions and conspiracies that may have had a hand in the colony's disappearance, and a few alternate theories that might help to explain what happened to White's colony, as well as some key historical figures that may have a connection back to the colony. The second part of the show will be looking at some of the myths and legends that have evolved out of the story of the lost colony. Is there some truth to these tales and legends, or do the circumstances of White's colony conveniently fit a narrative that has changed over time? We will be finishing up with some conclusions as to what may have befallen the missing colonists. Finally, we'll end our journey into the lost colony of Roanoke with a look at some of the strange disappearances throughout history related to the word Croatoan. Alright, so let's waste no more time, let's get into it. This is the Croatoan Mystery, Part 3. So after England's claim to North America disappeared along with the 112 to 120 men, women and children of the first colony, the Crown had a few questions as to what went wrong. Investigations into the missing colonists began as early as 1595. So this is pretty much right after the colony vanished. There was obviously a lot of time and money that was invested into this colony. Its failure had raised a lot of questions with a lot of people. So the Crown wasn't fucking around, they wanted answers and they wanted them quick. In today's time frame, five years is a long time to wait to investigate a missing colony. But given the distance and the available technology, five years back in 1595 was probably an average time frame to start an investigation on the other side of the world. So you think of the time and effort that was involved in this, you'd have to organize a crew, get a captain, give them a specific mission, launch, launch an investigation with absolutely no forensic technology whatsoever and hope they can get some type of coherent clue out of it which back then would have been no easy feat one thing that's really bugged me looking into all of this i can't help but think if the colonists had more economic value to the crown and were of a higher social status 
that time frame might have been two or three years rather than five. I've mentioned this on other shows, but I think there is a huge economic factor that played a part in the in the missing colony. Expeditions back to Roanoke began as early as 1595, along with further colonization attempts of North America. Explorers and colonists were still searching and investigating the missing colony as late as 1709. The story of Roanoke coincides with the first permanent British colony of Jamestown, which was settled back in 1605 in Virginia. So at this point, White has returned to Roanoke after three years back in England due to the Spanish-English War. No one could get out of the country, so he had no choice but to wait and return three years later. There was a lot of ups and downs in this trip. They had tried several times to launch an investigation, but were hampered by either the war, the weather, mutinous crew who wanted to go privateering rather than try to find people. He returns to England and never again leaves. He dies several years after not knowing the fate of his daughter or granddaughter. If you remember back to parts one and two, John White's daughter, Eleanor Dare, gave birth to the first European born on North American soil, Virginia Dare. He left to go back to England pretty much after she was born, within a month or two. So he doesn't know the fate of his daughter or granddaughter or the colony, and he dies with this mystery hanging over his head. So our tale is set in the years after 1590. So first up, we're going to be looking at the expeditions that followed in the years after the disappearances. There were six main expeditions that were undertaken from 1590 till 1709. Even after the hundred years of colonization, people were still asking questions and wondering about the fate of the colony. So during the following years of 1590 to 1594, there was a lot of questions being asked by some very influential people about the colony and the legal rights of claim over the land and the resource rights. In other words, it all comes back down to money. Colonization wasn't just about sticking the British flag on another, another patch of land. There's a lot of money to be made through land rights and natural resources such as gold, silver, tin, copper, whatever you could find in a untouched landscape. Just disregard the rights of the native peoples that live there, have been living there for thousands of years. We'll just fuck them off and we'll just take everything for ourselves. Now enters our first character in the tale, and that is none other than Sir Walter Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh had a very big part to play in the colonization attempts of North America. He funded a lot of the expeditions that went back and forth from England to Roanoke and eventually to mainland North America. He was also very interested in El Dorado and exploring South America, mainly for its resource rights and the amount of money he could make. He was also Richard Grenville's cousin and is probably most famously known for bringing tobacco to England. Sir Raleigh is a prominent figure in English and world history, especially in Elizabethan history. I mentioned this on a previous episode. Raleigh was granted a royal charter that allowed him to explore and colonize any remote lands deemed to be remote, heathen, and barbarous lands, countries and territories not actually possessed of any Christian prince or inhabited by a Christian peoples. So this entitled him to a large portion of any valuables or riches found in lands he discovers. The biggest problem with this is he has a right to exploit the land, but at the sake of indigenous peoples. As the charter outlines, he can if there's no Christians on the land, he can pretty much do what he likes. In England at the time, this was a prime investment opportunity for anyone who had enough money to launch an expedition. There would have been 
millions if not billions of dollars you can make through exploring a uncharted land. You could also make nothing can go broke, but the gold fever had hit England. The Spanish were in South America plundering every last gold coin they could get their hands on, and the English didn't want to get left out. They wanted a slice of that gold pie, and North America was a blank slate in which to do so. Like I said, there's no guarantees of what they actually might find. You might find a little, you might find a bit, or you might find a lot. So Raleigh's charter entitled him to one-fifth of the gold or silver that might be mined in the area. A decent percentage goes to the Queen and to the Crown. The charter specified that he had seven years to establish a settlement or he'd lose the right of charter. Either way, it's a pretty good deal and it would make him a lot of money. Sir Raleigh was a pioneer and a central figure in the colonisation of the New World. However, North America wasn't his only area of focus. He had many fingers in many pies. Like most people of his stature at the time, they never had one investment opportunity. Much like today, you don't usually invest in one set of stocks, you diversify. Raleigh had an interest in South America as well as the fabled city of El Dorado. One could argue that his only real interest in the Roanoke colony was how much he could cash in on the charter rights. As I mentioned before, I think the colonists were economic pawns in a game played by the elites and the aristocracy of England of the time. Interestingly enough, Raleigh doesn't ever set foot in North America or even visit the colony that he has invested so much time and money into. He seems more concerned with finding the fabled city of El Dorado than the welfare of the settlers. He even leads several expeditions to the City of Gold in 1595 and then again in 1617. You can kind of see where his priorities lie. It's all about that gold. So what was the interest in the New World? There was a race against Spain and England to pretty much get to North America and claim it before the other country could, more or less to get to the shiny stuff that was in the ground first. As per their charter agreement, Raleigh and Elizabeth intended on using the New World as a revenue stream to send riches back to England. By establishing a colony, it would provide a permanent base to export and import valuables. In the process, providing a base of operations to launch privateering raids on the Spanish bases and the settlements in the Americas. Spain had the Florida land rights. They had colonized areas of Florida and Central and South America. They were hoarding as much New World gold as they could possibly get their hands on, and they had it stored and exported from various ports all around Central, South, North America, and the Caribbean. The English wanted a piece of this and weren't afraid to launch privateering raids to get it. Raleigh passes on the responsibilities of founding a colony to others such as his cousin Grenville and later John White in 1585. Raleigh leads the search for the Golden City in 1595 and then again in 1617. He makes it through the Orinoco River Basin in South America and explores the surrounding areas. Needless to say, he doesn't find it. On his return home, Raleigh attempts to land near Roanoke after the long and fruitless adventures in South America but he is prevented from doing so due to the weather and severe winds. If you remember back to the previous episodes, the weather in this area plays a very big part in the story. Many of the rescue attempts were hampered by extreme weather. It seems like this part of the world, there's a lot of severe storm activity that can come up pretty fast. There's also been a lot of shipwrecks over the years. 
the weather patterns in this area are very extreme and they are very suspicious. Just They just seem to perfectly coincide with any rescue attempt toward the colony. Anytime any expedition is made to rescue the colony, severe weather prevents any ship from getting close to the island. So we arrived back in England in, the, in late August of 1595. Raleigh produces a book on the city of gold soon after his return home which a majority of which was elaborated on, which in turn has shaped some of the legends around El Dorado. This also makes it very hard to separate fact from fiction regarding the lost city of gold. A lot of these early historical accounts take a lot of creative liberties. It's the same as anything, any type of notable celebrity, you're always going to exaggerate on your accomplishments to make it sound more interesting or make yourself sound better. Which, in his case, he's put a lot of money into these expeditions. He's also got charters. So he's probably trying to cook up a good story to to take the heat off of why he has come back empty-handed. If you do this enough, you're going to build a reputation of being a pretty shit explorer. Oh, there's that Raleigh guy. He always comes back with nothing to show. How do you know he's even been to bits of South America, as he claims? He's going to make it up and put it in a book and make it sound like a good story. So the New World Revenue stream doesn't pan out, and it isn't really the cash cow that Raleigh had hoped for. As I've mentioned in parts 1 and 2, colonization is very, very expensive. The expeditions are primarily funded by Walter and his investors, such as personal friends and aristocrats, who don't have the balls to go exploring themselves. There's also probably a lot of investors who are friends of friends, and understandably, a lot of these people probably want to see a return on their investment. So it wasn't all smooth sailing for Raleigh. He did make enemies and his favour with the royals was up and down. He had befriended Queen Elizabeth who had him knighted in 1585. For his services to the crown, he also played a part in the defence of England against the Spanish Armada. This brought him a lot of sway with Queen Elizabeth and was probably one of the reasons she had a lot of respect for him. So Raleigh isn't always the model citizen. He does go to jail several times throughout his life. He does a little time here and there uh, in the Tower of London during the Elizabethan era and later during King James I's reign, who doesn't really like him that much. There's a big history between King James and Walter Raleigh. The pair didn't like each other very much and King James definitely has an axe to grind with Raleigh that would ultimately lead to his death. So back to the expedition. White had failed to find the colony in 1590 with the ultimate responsibility falling on Raleigh's shoulder. It's his money, it's his expedition, it's his responsibility. However, the circumstances surrounding the colony's disappearance does work out in Raleigh's favour. As long as there was mystery surrounding the colony, there was a buffer zone. Raleigh could use this buffer zone in order to protect his claim. As long as the colonists couldn't be proven to be dead, there was technically still an English settlement on North American soil. So this is kind of the catch-22 in the contract. White's optimistic report on the situation helped greatly with this. He suggested that they relocated and could still be alive and well, possibly living among the native tribes in the area. It's not all bleak for Raleigh. There's a little glimmer of hope that he can still cash in on his claim. This was a good thing for Raleigh. As long as the reality was in doubt and the colonists could not be proven dead, he could legally hold on to his claim on Virginia. In 1594, a spanner is thrown into the works that derails Raleigh's plans. A petition is made to declare Aeneas Dare legally dead. 
The petition claims he died during the settlement attempts, so his son John Dare can inherit his father's estate. The petition is given the green light in 1597. Raleigh's legal stake is dangling by a thread. During his voyage to South America in 1597, he claims to be searching for his lost colonists. But this is just a cover story to hide the fact that he was really looking for El Dorado and wanted to keep it under wraps. And this goes back to what I was saying, he really doesn't give two fucks about the colonists, he just cares about the gold. He only cares about the profit he can make from the trip. There's probably some legitimacy in that, he did spend a lot of money for these expeditions and the colonization attempts. He's paying for it out of his own pocket for the most part. So can you really blame the guy for wanting to recoup some losses? Does this make him evil? Does it make him a bad guy? Does he just want to make some money back before he finances another expedition or rescue mission to try and find the colony? This also brings his claims that the weather prevented him and his crew from landing on Roanoke on the way back into some serious doubt. If he lied about one detail of his trip, he probably lied about several. His book on the Golden City only helps to really reinforce this. He took a few liberties with details, making the accuracy of his story a lot less credible than it really should have been. The biggest reasons for this is simply he wanted to protect his monopoly on Virginia. He couldn't do this and would lose his charter rights if there was no colony or establishment in North America. This depended on the survival of the people living there. Under his charter agreement, this is one of the stipulations that they needed to be a permanent colony in North America. Not to fear, Raleigh was a crafty bugger. He had a plan to recoup some financial losses and come out on top with a profit. He obviously wasn't making any money back through his Virginia claim. Obviously, there was no mining attempts going on. There was no gold or silver or tin or any other mineral resources being exported from North America back to England. He needed to make a lot of money back and he needed to do that quickly. So Raleigh switches focus. The resource he had sought out to save his fortune was none other than a tree. The sassafras tree. Sassafras have a lot of uses from medicine, uh, especially for sailors, as well as it as it was a good way to fight scurvy, STDs, tooth problems, skin problems, kidney kidney issues. It's also a very popular ingredient in cooking. It's used as a spice and as flavoring. It is also a main ingredient in root beer and has been widely used throughout native populations for centuries. The sassafras is found unsurprisingly in North America, but also in East Asia. Raleigh funds another expedition to Roanoke in 1602, under the pretense of searching for the lost colony again. The real reason he put his own money into another trip was because the price of sassafras had gone through the roof in England. Its value as a commodity was more popular than ever. Raleigh even uses his own ship this time and hires Samuel Mace to lead the expedition. He's also guaranteed his sailors a paid wage so they wouldn't go off privateering or stray too far from the mission. There's every chance that he could actually have been looking for the colony. It is doubtful, but at the same time he could have been trying to kill two birds with one stone. He might have gone to harvest the sassafras, make some money, but also claim that he could he was looking for the colony. This wouldn't have really been hard to do. It's all in the same area. It wouldn't have cost him any more. He could have sent out a search party to look for the colony and the rest of the crew could have gone and collected the sassafras. The crew of the ship were paid well. They weren't going to be hampered by distractions. And he probably even gave them some more money to keep their mouth shut on the way home. It could have been a two-pronged mission that had a ulterior motive. 
The ship's manifest and itinerary outlines Raleigh's number one priority was his getting as much sassafras as humanly possible. And the location of the planned harvest was not Croatoan Island, but much further south of that. It was most likely mainland Virginia or, or its surrounding areas, maybe even up some of the rivers and tributaries that went further inland. But once again, the wild weather played a part. Samuel Mace wasn't able to land and stay put. This dampers Raleigh's plans, and the following year, in 1603, he is implicated in the main plot, which was a conspiracy to have King James I removed from power. This also probably explains why King James had such a hatred and disdain for Raleigh. However, I do think Raleigh was a victim in all this. I think he was set up in the main plot. I don't think he had much to do with it at all. I think he just really met with some of the conspirators. I think they tried to get him on side, but he wasn't interested in it. And this was just a convenient excuse that King James saw to have Raleigh taken off the chessboard altogether. The plot was the final nail in Walter's coffin. He loses his charter and is imprisoned and executed not long after. That concludes Raleigh's part in the story of Roanoke. In the same year of 1603, another man by the name of Bartholomew Gilbert launches one last expedition to find the colonists. Gilbert had planned on searching Chesapeake Bay for clues, but was once again hampered by the weather. When you look back on all these uh, expeditions and the weather events, it's nearly clockwork that as soon as a expedition is launched to find the colony, bad weather strikes. Maybe this is because the crews of the ship, maybe this is because the ships always leave England at the same time every year and arrive in Roanoke at the same time every year. Maybe that just happens to coincide with storm season on a yearly basis. Who knows, that could be the case. Once again, wild weather is a factor. Unlike Raleigh, Gilbert's overall intention of the expedition was to find evidence of the lost colony. So the weather forces Gilbert to land in a random area that was nearby the intended search area. So Gilbert doesn't give up, he keeps pushing through, he doesn't let the weather stop him, and he is definitely there for a specific mission, he wants to find evidence. So Gilbert organises a landing party to go ashore and to start the search. He accompanies the party and they land on shore on July 29th. Gilbert and the landing party were all killed not long after by a group of Native Americans. There was no real reason for the killings, however, I'm speculating here, but maybe they saw another ship landing in the bay and saw another group of white men. It stands to reason that probably a few of them were armed. They might have, might have been mainly soldiers. They could have all been men. Maybe they saw this as a threat. Maybe they thought, oh, okay, here comes another party similar to Lane's. They're going to come and kill us and burn our villages. Let's kill them before they kill us. The location is also very similar to where Lane's expedition took place. So maybe this is true. Maybe they thought that, oh no, Lane's returned. He wants revenge. Or he's going to make another attempt to settle. We don't want to go through that again. Let's take him out. Let's um, have a preemptive strike. So after the murder of Gilbert, the rest of the crew had no choice but to return to England. No closer to the truth. The expeditions are now over. The public focus has shifted, and there wasn't very many people willing to put up the money for any more expeditions for another hopeless search that wasn't going to that wasn't going to turn up any more clues. This is where things really start to get interesting. The first permanent settlement in North America was Jamestown in 1607. I mentioned that on a previous episode. The Jamestown colony 
is obviously a few years after Roanoke. They had their fair share of ups and downs everywhere from starvation, cannibalism, attacks of the locals. You name it, it probably happened to the colonists at Jamestown. It's a very similar story to Roanoke, although there's more resources and more people that went into that colony. And the Jamestown colony was kind of a success depending on which way you want to look at it. Now enters our next character. The man with a very unique sounding name, and that is none other than Mr. John Smith. So John Smith, he was a soldier, explorer, and later he became the governor of Jamestown. Jamestown's success relied on Smith's leadership, especially when times were tough during the first winter. He had taught the settlers how to farm and gather food as not to starve, which paid off during the winter of 1608. So Smith had a pretty uphill battle with Jamestown. He had to he was faced with a mutiny, he had to get people on board. A lot of the settlers refused to work and were on the verge of starvation. He implemented a plan. He had to get the workers on side and get them to work or they wouldn't eat. I.e. if you didn't do you didn't do a job around the settlement, you weren't gonna eat. And if you didn't eat, you were gonna starve. Smith had also explored Chesapeake Bay pretty extensively. He's also a pretty talented map maker. He made very detailed maps of the area. The maps he made on the region were used by later colonization attempts and for a long time after. Smith sounds like a pretty cool guy. He doesn't seem to want to kill all the locals he finds. He does. He generally seems like he wants to work with them. Some of the other challenges he faced is Jamestown had an influx of settlers in the spring of 1609. This obviously had a pretty negative of effect. They had they needed more land, they needed more buildings, they needed more food. They needed more resources to sustain a bigger population, which meant Smith had to gather more food. And this meant trading tools and weapons with some of the native tribes. One December day, Smith was out gathering food for the colony, where he was ambushed by members of the Powhatan. You might remember the Powhatan from earlier episodes. They were the main suspects in the massacre theory of the colony. He was taken captive by a future chieftain, Open Chancellor, who took Smith back to the village of Werowokomo to see his brother, who was also the chief. What has this got to do with the missing colony of Roanoke, you may ask? Well, you will find out soon. Smith is brought back to the Powhatan village that was located around 15 miles from Jamestown. This is pretty close proximity to a pretty large settlement. Obviously, there's probably a few reasons for this. One was trade. They needed food. They needed medicine, clothing, resources to survive in Jamestown. But at the same time, you may also be very close to an enemy. And as we've seen with the colony of Roanoke, they were also in close proximity to several native tribes. We know the Croatoan were friendly, but there was a lot of other mainland tribes that weren't so friendly and saw the colonists as a threat. This could be a similar situation. Smith was treated like a celebrity while he was being held captive. He was taken to a hunter's camp where Open Chancellor and his followers held a feast for Smith. Open Chancellor, I do hope I'm saying that name right. And Smith did not meet with his brother as he was out on a hunt at the time. Powhatan laws require that the chief be informed of a guest such as Smith. I guess the chieftain wanted to meet any type of rare visitor or guest to the village. Seven shaman were summoned and held a three-day divining ritual to find out whether Smith's intentions were pure or not. Did he come as friend or did he come as foe? 
Three days come and go, Smith checks out and the pair set out to look for Open Chance and his brother. On their travels they come across their Rappahannock tribe, who had been attacked several years ago by a European ship captain. Could this same captain be Grenville from the first expedition? Stands a reason that might be true. He was pretty aggressive towards native tribes. He was in that vicinity. So it's entirely possible that that might have been Richard Grenville who attacked the Rappahannock all those years ago. He's also probably responsible for the bad blood between the Native Americans and the European settlers. We'll come back to this part soon. So this leads us to the map. Smith and Open Chancellor presumably meet with his brother. Accounts do differ from this and vary to the timeline of events, so I'm sticking with the so I'm sticking with this one for continuity. Smith is told of a place called Okanahanan, where it is said that some of the men wear European-style clothing. This village also had a very unique style of architecture. It had walled houses. It also apparently had European-style two-story houses made from stone. This is obviously a very unique European trait, and it's something that is not seen in native architecture at that time. After about a month in captivity, Smith returns to Jamestown, He makes a few deals with Open Chancellor and his brother. The relationship isn't exactly concrete, but it is is a drastic improvement to settler-native relations. But it is definitely a vast improvement to how things used to be. There is a lot of drama in the coming years, but that is a very long story. Smith meets with Wawinawa Punk, a tribal king of the Paspahi tribe. Smith asks the Paspahi to look into reports of men in European clothing in the village or the settlement of Panawick. Smith has a colony produce a rough map of the area outlining the villages Smith wanted investigated. As I've outlined before, Smith was a very detailed map maker. If there was an area he had put on a map, it it stands to reason that he'd probably investigated it pretty heavily and was probably pretty familiar with the area. If it was included on the map, it was probably of some importance. One of these villages was Pakrahanic. There was a note attached to this map marker that says, Here remaineth four men clothed that came from Roanoke to Okanahanwa. Smith sends the map and the relevant information relating to the missing colony back to England in 1608. Smith had two copies made of the map and were sent back to London on the ship The Phoenix under Captain Nelson. Francis Nelson was a trusted friend of Smith. He gave him instructions to give one copy to to the Virginia Company and the other to his friend and fellow explorer, Henry Hudson. This is the same Henry Hudson of the Hudson Bay Company. He should have made a few more copies of the map, unfortunately, because both copies are lost. A man by the name of Pedro Duzinga, the Spanish ambassador to England, somehow gets his hands on one of these copies. It's not known how this came about. Did he steal it? Did he just find it? Did he trade it or buy it? But for whatever reason, Zuninga gets a copy of of one of the maps. Or at least he sees the original copies and maybe he made his own copy. He traced it. He had someone draw it out in detail. And he brings his map to King Philip III of Spain. He tips off the Spanish king to English progress in colonizing North America. So this is a quote from him confirming the fact. I have thought proper to send YM a plan of Virginia and another of the fort 
which the English have erected there, together with a report given maybe a person who has been there. Still, I am trying to learn more, and I shall report about it. Zuninga to Philip III, September 10th, 1608. Smith and the Paspahi have a falling out, which prevents Pakrahanic from being explored properly, which in turn ends the search before it really begins. Two more groups were sent to explore nearby villages from the map, with the explicit command to find the lost company of Sir Walter Raleigh. Needless to say, no evidence is found and the colony remains lost. The Royal Council for Virginia receives word in 1609 that the colonists have been massacred by Juan Han Sinakif. Speculation remains as to where this info came from and by who. It may have been reported by Machumps, a brother-in-law of Juan Han Sinakif, as he had provided reports from Virginia in the past and was in England at the time. So is this Machamp's character? Is he just gloating? Is he boasting or is he completely bullshitting? Was he told to do this by tribal chiefs to stop the search and to make the natives look like they they were in control? Smith also may have delivered the letter, but there is also no proof of that. Is Machamp's doing this to benefit Native Americans? Is he just trying to stop Europeans from investigating from investigating the dis- disappearance of the colony? Is he hiding something? Was he told to do this? Were the tribes in the area responsible for the deaths of the colony? Is he just trying to take the heat off of them? Who knows? It's all speculation, but there are interesting theories nonetheless. This was cause for alarm. The council draws up orders to move the colony of Jamestown to to Ohanahorn, near the mouth of the Chowan River. This decision was based on the information of the massacre and Smith's previous reports. Smith, like Raleigh, had also been accused of been a little more than creative in some of his accounts. He had also produced a unverified book detailing some of his adventures that may or may not have actually happened. Smith's works have been questioned before for their accuracy. In 1860, historian Charles Dean was the first to question Smith's stories, citing that Smith's version of accounts are in most cases the only ones available and can't be cross-referenced for details such as his dates for his apparent rescue by Pocahontas, the daughter of a tribal chieftain. This account was 10 years out of date by the time he had put it into the book. His first books are about geography and anography, and are not personal accounts or biographies, but that's getting off point. So let's have a look at some of these books a little closer. This is from Wikipedia. I know it's not the best source of information, but it's something to go on. So this is from the Wikipedia entry. I know it's not the best source of information, but this gives us a quick rundown of some of his accounts he had put in these books. So Henry Brooks Adams attempted to debunk Smith's claims of heroism. He said that Smith's recounting of the story of Pocahontas had been progressively embellished made up of falsehoods of effrontery seldom equaled in modern times. There is consensus among historians that Smith tended to exaggerate, but his account is consistent with the basic facts of his life. Some have suggested that Smith believed that he had been rescued when he had in fact been involved in a ritual intended to symbolize his death and rebirth as a member of the tribe. This was the divining ceremony that went over the course of three days when he was when he met with the brother of the tribal chief of the Powhatan. David A. Price notes in Love and Hate in Jamestown 
that this is purely speculation, since little is known about Powhatan rituals and there is no evidence of any similar rituals among other Native American tribes. Smith told a similar story in True Travels, 1630, of having been rescued by the intervention of a young girl after being captured in 1602 by Turks in Hungary. Karen Kupperman suggests that he presented those remembered events from decades earlier. When telling the story of Pocahontas, whatever really happened, the encounter initiated a friendly relationship between the Native Americans and colonists near Jamestown. As the colonists expanded further, some of the tribes felt that their lands were threatened and conflicts arose. Interesting and not surprising. You take too much of someone's land, they're going to push back. This brings up the bigger question, did he elaborate on these events to be nefarious or to try and trick his reading audience? Or did he simply just get the memories mixed up? Did similar things happen to him over the course of his life and he kind of blended them into the one event? Or did he mistake the girl that saved him from in Hungary with Pocahontas or vice versa? Was Smith remembering things in a different order to how they actually happened? So, moving along. It has been suggested that the colony move on the information that the Virginia Council had received. However, like always in this story, there are economic motivations. There were several copper mines close by that could be exploited by the colony and which would benefit the crown. The mines' locations were Ritonac and Perkerkamik. It was alleged that four of Raleigh's settlers were there. So as the story goes, the survivors of the, of the colony supposedly broke up into smaller groups and some had found their way to these mines so they were being held captive by a local chieftain by the name of Japanicon. like everything in this tale nothing ever seems to pan out things are delayed the new governor thomas gates arrives during the starving time of 1610 the colonists aren't keen to move a group is dispatched to scout the new location but there are no reports on their findings. So now we come to a, another character in the very drawn-out tale of Roanoke. So now enters William Stracy. William Stracy arrives at the same time as Gates and Machumps in May of 1610. He returns to England two years later in 1612, where he produces a book, The History of Travel into Virginia, Britannia, an overview of the Virginian Territory. He suggests and seems to think that the missing colony had been living peacefully with a tribe beyond Powhatan Territory for over 20 years. He also validates Smith's maps and identifies several villages as depicted on the map. It also aligns with the orders Gates receives from the council. The villages include the Perkakamak, the Uchahanan, Anurg, and Ritano. Something smells fishy to me. I don't know about you, but it seems too good to be true. Stracy's accounts seem to line up a little too perfectly with other accounts. He seems to corroborate Smith's accounts, so whether he is just building on the information that Smith has already provided, such as the, lo the location of villages depicted on the map, is he just coming up with a elaborate narrative to fit over the top of the pre-existing information? To me, this is what he seems like he is trying to do. He's taking the facts and basically picking up where the case left off. It seems way too convenient for it to be a reality. No one else has gotten this far, then all of a sudden he just comes up with this story that everything just seems to fit. 
Smith was on the right track, which in most cases he probably was, there's always a variable chance that he wasn't 100% accurate. So now Stracy comes along all these years later and just dumps his narrative on the top of it and says, oh, look, all this information checks out. Smith was right. Anyubi was right all along. This checks out. This village is accurate. This is what happened. I return to England two years later. I produce a book, and now I'm selling that book and making a profit from this fantastical story. He presents some new details to the alleged massacre at Roanoke. Stracy thinks that the one son, Anakif, carries out an unprovoked attack at the request of the tribe's priests, right before the Jamestown colony arrives. There's a few questions that need to be raised with this argument, which is the why, when, and where. Why would they attack the settlers? How does he know that this happened before the colony at Jamestown arrived? Where did this take place, and what was the motivations? He presents his new details, but he doesn't present a lot of evidence to back them up. So to me, Stracy's accounts are very fictitious to say the least. His theories don't really add up. They're full of holes. And he doesn't actually seem like he has done much research or investigation into this himself. He's largely, like I said before, he's cooking up a story to fit an older theory where someone else has done all the hard work. He also claims that there are several survivors who are now living under slaves under Chief Ayanako's protection. The slaves include four men, two boys, and a woman, seven in total. They are all working in the copper mines at Ritino. So as the other accounts have suggested, there was a copper mine in the vicinity. This also goes back to the earlier theory. There was a copper mine in the vicinity. The English knew about it. Raleigh knew about it. And others knew about it. It's also rather suspicious that this is now another search that's conducted in an area that contains a valuable natural resource. At the end of the day, it's all about the money. Stracy makes mention of this account in his book, but he unfortunately never gives us the name of the tribe that allegedly had the colonists living with them. So it's another outlandish claim with absolutely no evidence to back it up whatsoever. At least Smith met with tribes before he accused them of anything. He also does have a lot of facts backing up some of his accounts. His details might be off on his personal accounts, but his general information of the of the area, the geographic location, is bright on the money. Where Stracy seems to be all over the place. He just is making bold claims with nothing to back him up whatsoever. However, he does divulge a juicy piece of information. This is another piece of information that raises another series of questions. He tells of an attack against the Chesapeake tribe. This was a tribe that was made up of various different smaller Native American groups in the Chesapeake area. A one-hand Sanakif chief had warned and foretold him that a new nation would come from Chesapeake Bay and threaten his rule. So if you want to look into this prophecy, did this priest prophesize the Lane and White expeditions? Did he foresee the violence that Lane's company would bring? Did he foresee both of them? Or is he talking about broader European travelers in general? Was he referring to the later colonies of Jamestown? Or was it just general colonization attempts? Maybe this is just a good story, and it's just like most of Stratosi's work. It's just another narrative detail to facilitate the story. There's no actual factual basis behind it, like a lot of his stuff. Is that the same case here? No facts, just story. Unfortunately, with this account, we have to make the assumption that it is somehow flawed. 
So coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, another theory for the missing colony is that they moved to Chesapeake Bay after White had failed to return. We'll come back to this theory a little later. Strosey's view of the Powhatan is largely biased due to his devout religious beliefs. He believes that Powhatan religion is satanic, and that there are shamans who are directly in communication with the devil himself. This does not make it hard to legitimize his claims in his book. His outlook is not that of a man with a historical outlook or focus in mind. He has become very bigoted and jaded based on his own devout religious beliefs. So this leads him to do what a lot of other explorers to strange lands do, and that is convert the population to Christianity. He had even gone as far to appeal to England for permission to do so. Strosey's plan involved the cooperation of King James, by which he would show mercy to the Powhatan for the deaths and slaughter of the colonists. The priests didn't fare so well in this deal, unfortunately. Strosey wanted revenge on them, even though there was little to absolutely no proof of any wrongdoing on their part. This seems to be solely driven by Strosey's hatred or misinterpretation of a native religion, and a religion that is, for the most part, pretty peaceful. And if there is any attacks committed on European settlers, they probably had it coming. There was a lot of back and forth and a lot of give and take going on, and relationships get strained. In not all cases, some natives were very hostile for no reason, others had a pretty good reason for the hostilities. He seems hell-bent on systematically eradicating a very old belief system because of his own feelings towards it. So unfortunately for Stracy, this is where his credibility has to end. He can quite seemingly live with a clear conscience, wiping out an entire belief system and native peoples because he deems them as satanic. Now where Stracy's proof in this, like we've seen with his accounts, he has absolutely no proof to back up his claim. He is just believing it, he's appealing to the higher-ups for permission to essentially commit a cultural genocide. There are a few reasons why I have to personally discredit William Stracy's accounts. He is pretty much just a bigoted, intolerant Christian who deems everybody satanic because he doesn't understand or has no tolerance for a belief system far older than his own. And unfortunately, at this time, this is largely the mindset of a lot of European explorers. If you weren't Christian, you weren't good. So as it turns out, the London Company, which was affiliated with the Jamestown Colony, chose not to publish Stracy's fictionalised accounts of Virginia, and rightfully so. They probably saved a lot of lives in doing so. If this account had have got to the general public, it probably could have steered the public opinion in a very dangerous and genocidal direction. And whether you agree with Stracy or not, it probably wouldn't have worked out well for the Native Americans and to the settlers, because every action has an equal and opposite reaction. If they had gone around slaughtering the natives because of a belief system they didn't understand, based on a fictionalized account that's backed up with no facts whatsoever from Stracy, there could have been a lot of pushback from Native American tribes, which wouldn't have bode well for the innocent people uh, living in Jamestown. There probably would have been a lot more massacres taking place. The book falls into the abyss until 1849, where it is dug up, and this is where we get a lot of the accounts from today. Fortunately, there is no evidence to suggest that there was any violent action taken against Wansan Hanakif or his shaman. 
So this brings us to Mr. Samuel Purchase. It's 1625 now, and a decent amount of time has gone by since the colony went missing. It is around this time where the relationship between natives and Europeans are strained to breaking point. Things get tense and take a very dark and racial dive. What follows next is a very big factor as to why we most likely don't know more about what happened. Intolerance and arrogance are to blame. In 1622, the Powhatan attacked Jamestown. There are many reasons for the attack and more than 15 years of up and downs, bad blood and altercations that ultimately lead to the attack. Both parties are at fault and there wasn't just one issue or event that led to the massacre. So Jamestown has a long and bloody history. There's a lot of complex moving parts and strained relationships that went into the Powhatan massacring a large portion of the Jamestown population. The Powhatan weren't just at fault. There's a lot of shit the colonists did to upset them. And this was probably going to happen sooner or later. But that's a story for another day. Let's get back on track. After the attack, the English changed their tune on the Native Americans. Post-1622, the accounts on Native Americans differ drastically from how they once did. The English regarded the natives as savages and completely rethought their cultural values. This in turn led to corporate-sponsored propaganda. The London Company jumped on the chance to incite distrust with locals and violence, claiming that such an action was worthy of genocidal reaction. The London Company, from an economic standpoint, needed to protect their rather big investment. As I've always said with the story, everything comes down to money. It all comes down to the dollar and cent amount. The London Company is, is sponsoring propaganda to incite violence. They needed to protect investors' money and reassure financial backers by protecting the colony and using force if needed. So time to go back to good old Sammy Boy. Purchase was a cleric from England who transcribed accounts from travellers and sailors. He is well known for comprising manuscripts of historical accounts and adding his two cents to the narrative. So once again, narrative takes the place of facts. The authors choose to put their own feelings and their own thoughts above what actually happened, which makes a definitive historical record on these accounts very hard to decipher. Purchase's editorial skills have been brought into question. He has been described as careless, having poor judgment, and not re representing the facts correctly. So Purchase is more or less a foreign correspondent, who never actually travels to the places he ever writes about. In fact, he never travels more than 200 miles from where he was born. So how can he be a reliable foreign correspondent when he never goes to a foreign land? That should be the first red flag for this guy. As it turns out, his accounts are in most cases the only ones history has, which is very unfortunate. So as we've seen, the guy makes up a lot of shit and he adds his own personal thoughts and feelings to what should be a historical account, not a fictionalised historical narrative. Not a fictionalised historical story. However, there is still a lot we can get from his writings despite the one-sided arguments. Sam's 1625 Virginia's Verga agreed that England had the right to exploit the North American claim. According to him, North America had given up their rights to the land through bloodshed due to the attack on Grenville's men in 1586, white settlers and the Jamestown massacre. So let's pause for a minute. 
In the case of Greenville, who incited who? The natives didn't attack Greenville's men until they were provoked by Greenville. They accused some native tribes members of stealing and they wanted retribution by burning down their villages. Things escalated from there and they eventually led to the attack on Lane's Fort. The attack on white settlers could be a knock-on effect of the actions by Lane and Grenville. The massacre at Jamestown could also be tied back to these two events. In the case of the Jamestown massacre, there's a lot of varying factors that contributed to the massacre. So Purchase makes a lot of claims here, but he doesn't provide any evidence, much like Stracy. A lot of Purchase's works have been described as unfaithful and, and careless. A lot of his editorial decisions also aim at educating a reader, such as foreign lands and morality. He also adds a lot of his own Christian sentiment to back up a lot of his claims, which unfortunately makes a lot of his works very unreliable. Interesting, but unreliable nonetheless. However, he does make a very bold claim that is of particular interest. He claims that the Powhatan confessed to Captain Smith, and this is a quote, from Smith from Purchase's work. Smith had been at their slaughter and had divers utensils of theirs to show. So pretty much he's got some physical evidence from the colonists who were slaughtered by Powhatan. On the one hand, this could be true, but given how lenient he has been so far with the facts, combine that with the fact that he is retelling a second-hand version of events, it makes it very hard to take seriously. It is possible that one Hans Nakif did confess to Smith. After all, they did spend a lot of time together. There, He was a captive of his for several weeks to a month, and they probably maintained a relationship after that. But Smith's accounts make no mention of this confession. Even if it were true, there are many variables at play. It could have been a way to test Smith's loyalty, or it could be done to scare him and others like him from ever attacking the Powhatan. With all these accounts, Smith, Stracy, and Purchase, they all have a very lenient way of telling the story. They elaborate on a lot of stuff, as we've seen. But that is a very big detail to admit, especially from a personal account. It seems like he would have included that, because it is a very important detail to the story. The fact that Smith, who is known to elaborate on his personal accounts doesn't make mention of that whatsoever does suggest that this might be made up so now we come to the final expedition it was made by a man named john lawson in 1701 to 1709 it is also the last attempt made to look for the colony until the 1800s lawson was a historian who explored north carolina for almost 10 years the fact that he is a historian gives him a better focus and a better judgment to launch an investigation to look for the colony. He's not motivated by money or greed or land rights or any of that shit. He also doesn't seem to be driven by his religious beliefs. He just seems to want to be able to explain what happened for the historical record. So during his travels, he explores the Outer Banks along Hatteras Island. He also encounters and lists the local people along the way. There had been some geographic changes since the 1500s. The inlet between Kraltoan and Hatteras Island had closed up. The area was no longer a popular route for ships due to the unpredictable weather. We've seen the weather play a part before, but 
this is not unusual. Any place in the world is going to look different 100 to 200 years later. Given that it's very close to the ocean and the coastline, this is not surprising. So Lawson was the first historian to make a detailed search of the area since John White back in 1590. There is some evidence to suggest that there had been some European activity in the area, but no permanent settlements or villages. Lawson notices a European influence and culture on Hatteras. So here is our next clue and the next part of the mystery. Lawson was told by the locals that some of the Hatteras people's ancestors were white, and some of them even had grey eyes, which is a distinctive European trait. Lawson is more than likely the first person to propose the integration theory. He suggests that members of White's colony assimilated into local tribes, therefore spreading their genes throughout the populace. Let's think from the point of view of the colonists. After White left and returned to England for supplies, you'd have your fingers and toes crossed that he was going to return pretty quickly with food and supplies. After White doesn't return the following year, or even several months later, you'd probably start to panic. You have hostile tribes on one side of you, the ocean on the other. Your colony's on an overexposed island with not a lot of food resources. There's a couple of friendly tribes in the area. Your best bet would probably be to integrate with them, live peacefully. That way you're not going to freeze or starve to death waiting for white to return. So this is out of desperation. There's pretty much no other options available to the colonists. It was integrate or die. When Lawson explored Roanoke Island, he reportedly found the remnants of the fort and English items such as guns, coins, and a powder horn. Thus concludes the expeditions that came in the years following the disappearances. After this, the missing colony is forgotten by history until the 1800s. Lawson's discovery of the ruins on Roanoke led to the area becoming a tourist attraction in the early 1800s. The ruins slipped into decline in the 1860s, and into the 1900s, until it was saved by the National Park Services in 1941, where it still remains today. So that's the end of part one of the podcast, let's move along to part two. Let's look at some of the conspiracies that surround the Lost Colony. There are three main theories. First up is the conspiracy against Raleigh. Anthropologist Lee Miller put forth a pretty daring theory that claims Sir Francis Walsingham Simon Fernandez and Edward Stafford and a few other high-ranking individuals conspired to deliberately abandon the colony on Roanoke in 1857. If you remember back to episode 1 of the Croatoan mystery, Simon Fernandez and Edward Stafford were pilots of the ships that were on the first expeditions to Roanoke. Simon Fernandez was the one that dumped White and the colony at Roanoke Island rather than take them up the Chesapeake Bay where he was supposed to. He did this so he could go privateering. Edward Stafford was one of the captains of the first expedition. So Miller suggests that the plan was to sabotage Walter Raleigh's expedition because it interfered with Walsingham's secret plans to make England a Protestant superpower. This would also destabilize the Catholic nations such as Spain. That's a very bold theory to put out there, but is there some truth to it? After all, there was a lot of tension between Spain and England at the time, especially when White returned to England. Spain and England eventually ended up going to war. The Spanish Armada attacked England and prevented White from returning to the colony. So was there some conspiracy behind this? Was this Walsingham 
playing off both sides? Was he playing England off against Spain and vice versa? After all, Spain was probably the biggest Catholic nation after England and were fanatic in their Catholicism. They pretty much destroyed two entire continents, pushing their religious agenda. So to blow Miller's theory off as a simple conspiracy theory might be a bit hasty. After all, the Spanish did ravage Central and South America in the pursuit of Christianization and the hoarding of gold. So it's not that far-fetched to believe that people of this era had a very different mindset than we do today. It was very easy to think genocidal and even easier to enact a genocidal program that would be unleashed on native populations. It's been done many times before and was just the way business was done back then. If the Spanish found it this easy to commit these ghastly acts on a native population, stands to reason the English did too. So was he playing a Christian Protestant game of chess? If this is true, did he really think he could get away with a Catholic genocide? Especially in a Catholic country like England, I know it's been a bit up and down, it's been Catholic and Protestant and vice versa for a bit, I'm not too sure on the history, but... Did he really think he could get away with that? Was that his overall plan? I mean, the Spanish were very good at pushing Christianity on native populations, so were the English, as we've seen before. Was Walsingham doing the same thing? Was he trying to push Protestant beliefs onto England? Was he pitting Spain against England and vice versa? Was he outflanking the Catholic mindset of England at the time? Who knows? It's a very interesting theory, and it could be true. He could have he could have had a Protestant conspiracy against the Catholic world. If this theory is correct, it would explain why it was so hard for Raleigh and White to send relief until Walsingham's death in 1590. However, this also is contradicted by the war with Spain, but maybe that it was all Walsingham's plan. Get Spain and England to go to war to prevent any type of help being sent back to the colony. However, that is a very big and very complex plan to initiate to prevent aid from getting to the 112 people on the other side of the world. It doesn't seem like anyone would willingly go to war with another country just to cover up the fact that there was a colony on the other side of the world. It doesn't make a lot of sense and it also seems pretty um, unlikely and pretty unfeasible that he would start a war to cover up a colony on the other side of the world. I don't think anyone's going to go to the, that lengths to, to do that. On the other hand, it could be a way to destabilize Spain, to weaken them militarily. Spain was also vying for a claim over North America. They wanted it for a Spanish colony. England wanted it. There was a big competition and race for North America. Was this a way to weaken the Spanish fleets in the Caribbean? So who knows? So Miller goes one step further and suggests that the colonists may have been separatists that were looking for a second chance in America, a land where they hadn't been persecuted for their religious ideals. This also raises the question, what was the point of Land's expedition if this was just a cover-up to send a bunch of separatists to a to who are seeking refuge in the other side of the world, why go to the, all the effort and send all the manpower and resources down there two years earlier to establish a settlement? It doesn't really make sense, and it'd be a very expensive way to set up a refugee colony on the other side of the world. Why go to all that effort? 
why sacrifice all those men's lives? Just the resources and supplies and ships needed to set up to investigate a new continent two years before to send 112 refugees. I'm sure they could have gone somewhere else that was a lot closer than the new world. They could have sought refuge in European countries, so it seems a bit far-fetched they would go to all that effort. Sorali felt sorry for them and was willing to help them out, while Walsingham saw them as the enemy that needed to be taken out. Once again, why spend all that energy? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Walsingham was pretty high up in Elizabeth's council. He had a lot of um, influence. This is also the same time that England's at war with Spain, where every resource and supply and ship is needed for the war effort. It seems very unlikely he would waste his time and effort putting resources into a refugee colony. Not to mention, with the entire nation at war, supplies would be pretty hard to come by, and I dare say Queen Elizabeth would have her own people gathering supplies for the war, and this type of resource wasting would definitely get somebody's attention, most notably the Queen's. Let's have a look at Walsingham. He does sound like a cunt, so let's see if he's as bad as everybody thinks. So I'm going to have a look at the Wikipedia entry on him. I know it's not the, I've said it before, it's not the best source of information, but for a quick rundown of the facts, let's have a look at him. So for Sir Francis Walsingham, 1532 to 1590. So Walsingham was the principal secretary to Queen Elizabeth I of England from December 20th, 1573 until his death, he is popularly remembered as a spymaster. So this guy's a principal secretary, so this guy's in charge of the books, pretty much. If anyone could cook the books, it would be him, so he maybe he could allocate or hide certain resources that no one was going to find. After all, he's an educated man. He probably had a lot of people around him that weren't so educated. It may or may not have been very easy for him to hide things. Who knows? If anyone could get away with this type of action, it could be him, but at the same time, he would have probably eventually be found out. But this would have got Queen Elizabeth's attention. Someone would have told her about it, or she would have found it out by herself, and he most likely would have been put to death. He did witness the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where the, where the Huguenots were targeted by Catholic mob violence. He has had a pretty colourful life. He served as Secretary of State. However, even on his Wikipedia page, there's a section called Espionage. Walsingham, Walsingham was driven by Protestant zeal to counter Catholicism and the sanctioned use of torture against Catholic priests and suspected conspirators. Edmund Campon was among those tortured and found guilty on the basis of extracted ev evidence. He was hung, drawn and quartered at Tyburn in 1581. Walsingham could never forget the atrocities against Protestants he had witnessed in France during the Bartholomew Day Massacre, and believed the similar slaughter would occur in England in the event of, of Catholic resurgence. So obviously England was predominantly Protestant at this time, and he definitely saw Catholics as a threat. Walsingham's brother-in-law, Robert Beale, who was in Paris with Walsingham at the time of the massacre, encapsulated Walsingham's view. And this is a quote, I think... It time and more than time for us to awake out of our dead sleep and take heed least like mischief as was already overwhelmed the brethren and neighbours in France and Flanders embrace us which be left in such sort as we shall not be able to escape. 
Walshingham tracked down Catholic priests in England and supposed conspirators by employing informers. And intercepting correspondence, Walsingham's staff in England included the cartographer Thomas Phillips, who was an expert in deciphering letters and forgery, and Arthur Gregory, who was skilled at breaking and repairing seals without detection. Hmm, the plot thickens. In May 1582, letters from the Spanish ambassador in England, Bernardo de Mendoza, to contracts in Scotland were found on a messenger by Sir John Foster, who forwarded them to Walsingham. The letters indicated a conspiracy among the Catholic powers to invade England and displace Elizabeth with Mary, Queen of Scots. By April 1583, Walsingham had a spy identified as Giordano Bruno by author John Bosey. Deployed in a French ambassador embassy in England in London, Walsingham's contact reported that Francis Throckmorton, a nephew of Walsingham's old friend Nicholas Throckmorton, had visited the ambassador Michel del Castanello in November 1583. After six months of surveillance, Walsingham had Throckmorton arrested and then tortured to secure a confession, an admission of guilt that clearly impacted Mendoza. The Throckmorton plot called for an invasion of England along with a domestic uprising to liberate Mary, Queen of Scots, and depose Elizabeth. Throckmorton was executed in 1584, and Mendoza was expelled from England. So maybe there is some truth to that conspiracy after all. He does sound like a very interesting character and a fucking ruthless prick. He was willing to go that far to stop a Catholic uprising... However, as his kind of nickname suggests, he's a spy master. He definitely seems to do things in a clandestine way. He doesn't just come out and do them overtly. He's He very much operates in the shadows. He was also instrumental in the entrapment of Mary, Queen of Scots. So, he is a religious extremist. There's no other way to put it. He exploits his position of power for his own gain, and he is spreading a very warped ideology. There was better ways to probably execute his goal, but he went for the violence gets results. So Miller continues, she believes that the colony split up with a small breakaway group heading for Croatoan, and the main group wrote relocating to the Chowanoke. Things didn't go so well. The settlers spread European diseases that all but wiped out the Chowanoke, which leads to a power vacuum in the area that could have potentially devastating consequences. This leads to the Chowanoke being attacked and the colonists taken captive by the Mandog tribe. This is a side note, that same tribe had a few encounters with the Jamestown colony. She also suggests that the Mandog are the Eno tribe, I mentioned them in episode 2 I think, and traded the remaining survivors for slaves until they were filtered throughout the entire region, making them nearly impossible to track down at the time. That could be true, taking them inland would be very hard to find them at the same time. It's also very hard to find any, any evidence of that. And that also brings up the question is how far did they go? They walk all the way to California or did they end up in a more inland state that wasn't so far away from North Carolina? Did they end up with another tribe in another state somewhere? <clears throat> there's a lot of big claims to this theory, but there's not a hell of a lot of concrete evidence. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence, as in the case of Walsingham, and his background, but that's kind of about it. Everything else is more or less a narrative 
on top of a theory that doesn't have a lot of evidence to back it up. The biggest challenge to this theory is Walsingham's financial backing of Raleigh's expeditions. This is also one of the fatal flaws of the theory. Also, Fernandez did bring John White back to England, and they knew each other pretty well. They'd been on many expeditions together, and there was there didn't seem to be any altercations between them. Fernandez did try to help White. He did take him back in a ship and took him to back to Roanoke the second time around. He didn't leave him like he did the first time. So if this, this was to be true, why didn't he just shoot White in the back of the head and push him overboard? Make up a story or you know, push him off the, off the boat or maroon him on an island somewhere. He could have also had an accident or been killed in the war, etc., but he wasn't. There's many things that could have happened to White to prevent him from going back to to find the colony and his daughter, but it doesn't seem like it's the case. And as I just mentioned, Walsingham was one of the biggest financial backers of Raleigh's expeditions. He also seems to be an acquaintance of Raleigh's. He doesn't seem to be an enemy, and he does put up a, a lot of his, of his own money for the colony. That suggests that he knows about the colony and he w- was willing to finance it. Does that sound like he was trying to prevent a Protestant colony? No, it sounds like he's trying to enable a colony on the other side of the world. So let's move along. Next up is an interesting theory, and that is the secret operation at Beachland. So this theory crosses over into the myths and legends section a bit. It's a local Dare County legend. It mentions uh, an abandoned settlement named Beachland. If the name Beachland sounds familiar, I mentioned that on episode 2 of the Coral Time Mystery. So Beachland can be found in the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge. There's been a few rumours that there have been coffins found at the site that have Christian markings on them, which have been connected back to the missing colony. It's not 100% concrete. There's reports or rumours, but not a lot to back them up. So, Philip McMullen, an engineer by trade, and Fred Willard, an amateur archaeologist, have come up with a theory that links the two together. The pair have suggested that Walter Raleigh had sent the colonists to harvest sassafras, which grew along the Alligator River, despite the lack of much evidence. I know I keep saying lack of evidence a lot in this show, but it is a common denominator with his story. It is a cool theory, but there are too many gaps in it. There's a lack of evidence and a lot of speculation. The historical accounts, as we know, tell us one series of events. However, the linchpin of this theory relies on them being falsified. They suggest that all records of the colony were forged to cover up the real intent of the mission. This includes the original destination of Chesapeake Bay, and that there had been no contact with White's colony. All this was done as a way of hiding the Sassafras operation from the Spanish. They knew as well as we did that the Spanish were in the area, and had been for quite some time. So why didn't they bring a better security force? So why didn't they bring 500 soldiers with them? Like the Lane and Grenville expedition, why didn't they have men-at-arms, soldiers or people who knew how to defend themselves? Were Lane and Grenville in on it too? If this was such a valuable commodity, why wasn't there better planning and execution? If this theory is to be true, there would need to be a hell of a lot better planning if this is to be believed. So Raleigh secretly re-establishes communication with the colony in 1597. And as it turns out, the expedition he was sending back and forth to the New World for Sassafras, outlined before in the previous section, 
were actually just picking up the sassafras harvests from the settlers and exporting them back to England. Raleigh does make some mention of sassafras in one of his itineraries or in one of his journals, but that's really about it. This also changes the whole reality of the lost colony. If Raleigh knew the colony was safe and well the whole time, then they were never lost. This would also bring into question why did White waste his time going back to Roanoke three years later, worrying every day that his daughter and granddaughter may or may not be dead and the fate of his colony? The historical accounts lead us to believe that he died not knowing the fate of the colonists. Now, if this is to be true, then that means White was in on it too, and he just was seemingly going back to Roanoke as a publicity stunt or as a way to bolster Raleigh's credibility. He would have also had to lie about not finding the colony on his return back to England. And I don't think he would have stayed away for three years just to spend a couple of months looking for them. Find them, okay, you're all good, now I'm going to go back to England to corroborate Raleigh's story. This is, would have been the first time he's seen his daughter in three years, and probably the first time he's actually had spent any, type, any amount of time with his granddaughter. I find it very hard to believe, even if he was under orders, that he would have left. And given how dodgy the weather was, it's not like he could have just left whenever he wanted to. A fair degree of chance needs to be accounted for, especially with the weather in this part of the world. You're kind of on the Roanoke weather timetable, not John White, Raleigh or Lane's time. So this would change the reality of the colony. It would all be a complete con. It would be a false colony for economic gain. It also makes you wonder why no one returned. Was this part of the plan? Let's get a whole bunch of middle class and poor families, get them to go along along with this elaborate plan, move to the other side of the world where you'll never be heard from. Again, pick Sassafras for Raleigh to make him richer, then fuck off into the obscurity of time. There would have been no guarantees that they would get along with the locals. That was also variable. That was also left a chance. So I'd have to call this theory complete bullshit. And I don't think Raleigh had pockets deep enough to cover the economic damage that, that this little stunt would have cost. So this theory also suggests that the colony was never abandoned, not at the time that all the other historical accounts say it was. The information on the colony's whereabouts becomes lost, therefore rendering it, rendering it abandoned after Raleigh was put to death in 1618. After that, there are no more expeditions and supplies dwindled and the colonists would have then integrated with the Croatan at Beachland. And all of this was a secret, by the way. Walsingham was distrustful of Raleigh and didn't like him. As some theories have suggested, he would have been suspicious of him. That also brings into question, did the Queen know? Were they doing all this behind the Queen's back? She did sign off on the colony after all. She was expecting some return on that investment. Her and Raleigh were quite close friends. That would also suggest that Raleigh betrayed that trust and did this all behind her back. If this plan was to be found out by the Queen, Raleigh and his conspirators would have all been put to death. So there are a few major problems with this theory. Some are pretty obvious. One, there isn't enough concrete evidence to back it up, like every other theory, to explain these disappearances. It relies too heavily on a few minor bits of information, such as a 1651 map that has a sassafras tree on it located near the Alligator River. That's not much to go on. It's just a picture of a tree on a map. Yes, it might mean something. It might be some secret, have some secret meaning to it, but 
nothing else is said about it. So therefore, you have to make the make the argument that it was just a tree on a map. Most of the theory revolves around loose oral stories and unverified reports. Another problem is that Riley had allegedly planted a sassafras farm to cash in on the craze of 87. This would also recoup a majority of the losses he suffered in funding the missing colonies expedition. Time for a fact check. The sassafras price goes up in the late 1590s, not at the time the colony landed on Roanoke in 1587, so a farm couldn't have been planted. Yeah, it's entirely possible that he might have predicted this and set up a farm a couple of years before. That still wouldn't have been enough time for them to turn into fully matured plants. And that's also based on the idea that he knew that the price was going to go up, which he wouldn't have. He was, by all historical accounts, he sounds like he's chasing his tail and he's trying to cash in on a commodity that has that had hit its peak value at a certain time. He seems to be interested in harvesting sassafras at the time it becomes popular in England and its its price skyrockets, which was kind of a one-off by the look of it. So I don't think he could have planned a farm, let alone cooked up a giant conspiracy involving a colony to go along, to go along with it. Raleigh copped a lot of criticism from a lot of Elizabethan figures. It's not just modern historians or scholars that have criticized some of his decision making and his lack of care for a for his own colony sir francis bacon had this to say about him and this is a quote it is the sinfulest thing in the world to forsake or destitute a plantation once in forwardness for besides the dishonor it is the guiltiness of blood of many commiserable persons he wrote that in 1597 there's another theory that could fit into this section, but I've already touched upon it in episode 14, and that is the Spanish attacking and wiping out the colony. The theory basically states that they murdered the colonists and sought to cover it up. If you want to know more about that, download episode 14 and have a listen to it there. So next up we have one of my personal favorite theories, and that is Site X. It's now November of 2011. While undertaking research on John White's La Virginia Pars map from 1585. This is the map he made himself on the Lane Expedition by the First Colony Foundation. The researchers found two patches on the map that were added to cover up mistakes. This aroused the curiosity of researchers who asked the British Museum to analyse the map for clues as to what the patches may be covering up. If you do want more information on this, head on over to firstcolonyfoundation.org and they have a giant research paper on all the archaeological evidence of Site X. So this is just taken from the quick overview of the, from the First Colony Foundation webpage. Documentary and cartographic evidence, most notably the Virginia Pars map, attest to Sir Walter Raleigh's Roanoke colonists having a strong interest in the Western Albemarle Sound. The First Colony Foundation believes that it has uncovered archaeological evidence of Roanoke colonists' presence at Site X in that area. The artifacts assemblage from the limited area that has been excavated so far, particularly the relatively large amount of Surrey Hampshire borderware, as well as shards of North Devon Plain bolster jar, which were provisioning jars for sea voyages, leads us to conclude that these finds are the result of Roanoke colonists' activity at the site and are not related to later English settlement in the area. 
Additionally, we postulate that this evidence is more likely the result of the 1587 colony's stated plan to relocate from Roanoke Island rather than possible brief visits in previous years by exploratory parties under Philip Amadeus or Ralph Lane. The excavation of domestic tablewares from several different diagnostic vessels along other less diagnostic but possibly contemporaneous artifacts strongly suggests that the above-mentioned European presence was of a longer duration and the activities different from those recorded for the for the pre-1587 English exploration of the Lower Chowan River Basin. Further excavation should help determine the nature of a duration of the Elizabethan presence at Site X. The first colony foundation does not contend that Site X on its own represents the relocation site for the majority of the 1587 colonists. Our working hypothesis is that the Elizabethan artifacts at Site X represent perhaps a small group of survivors such as those indicated on the 16A08 Zuniga manuscript map that is taken from the overview on the firstcolonyfoundation.org webpage. If you want to know more about that, they have a whole academic paper that outlines the archaeological evidence found at Site X. It's very interesting and will give you a better insight into what they found there. So back to this mysterious Site X. So the map was examined under a light table as not to harm the map. One of the patches was located near the junction of the Chowan and Roanoke rivers. The patch in question was covering up an image of a fort at the location. It's hard to tell the precise location of the fort as the scale of the image is overly exaggerated. In real in realistic terms it covers thousands of miles of of Bertie County, North Carolina, and pretty much everywhere in between. So researchers have estimated and assumed that the location is located near or in a 16th century Wepamock village called Mataquem. So in case you're wondering, the Site X map gets its name from X marks a spot. It's basically a simple way to, to remember it. So in 2012, when a team prepared to excavate where the symbols indicated, Archaeologicus Nicholas Lachetti suggested they named the location Site X, as in, X marks a spot. The First Colony Foundation reported in 2017 that they had found Tudor pottery and weapons at the site, which suggests that a small group of colonists integrated into the area, maybe even living with native peoples. The hard part of researching to find such as this is eliminating that the artifacts weren't brought to the site by the land expedition. Found at Roanoke or somewhere else and taken back as souvenirs or items to use or that were traded decades later. As of 2019, the foundation continues to expand the dig site and research into the surrounding areas. So the question remains, why did White cover up the site on the map? He did make the map the first time around on the Lane Expedition, so did he have knowledge of the fort Lane and co. had built? Stands the reason, yeah, he probably did. Did White tell the colonists that there was a fort nearby that they may have been safe in? Did he say, hey, look, this is the site of Lane's fort. If you get in trouble, head there. The only hole in that theory is he didn't search there when he came back three years later. And if he had have assumed they were going to go there, that would have been his first point of call, is to take the ships up to the site of the first fort. Now, White was under the impression that they had gone to live with the Carlton as the message on the tree indicated. So this kind of shoots this theory down a bit. However, maybe he was telling them where to go and he was keeping this a secret from the establishment. Maybe he thought they were better off by themselves and away from English rule. However, I don't think this is the case. 
So, do the colonists have a map? Stands the reason that this is a possibility. But why cover it up? Did White just make a mistake? Bearing in mind that there were two patches, one covering up the fort and the other covering up the southern coastal areas around the Palamico River. This patch seems to be a corrective patch covering up a minor alterations to the coastline. Then again, this is not really that uncommon. Maps back in the day were very expensive and time-consuming to produce, so if you made a mistake, you weren't just going to rip it up and start again. You're going to put a patch over it and keep going. You're going to repair the mistake rather than start again because it, it just took too damn long. So this is an excerpt from the firstcolonyfoundation.org. There is no visible tear or cut in the paper under the two small paper pieces the researchers call patches. It was common for artists at the time to make corrections to their work by placing clean pieces of paper or patches over areas they wish to change or redraw. The northern almost square patch number two covers an area of Albemarle Sound where the Roanoke and Shawan rivers join. There is only a slight correction to the coastline on its upper surface, but beneath it on the original surface is the possible fort symbol which is visible only when the map is viewed on a light box. The southern patch number one covers initial sketches of part of the Palmaco River, depicting its northern shoreline with ships sailing past. Here the watercolour image on the patch makes corrections to the drawing of the shoreline and river channels and the placing of some of the villages. Comparison of these changes to a sketch map sent back to England during the 1585 Exploration may offer clues to the location of the important Algonquin town of Sequoyton. So that was a excerpt from the firstcolonyfoundation.org. However, the spanner in the works with this theory is, it wasn't that safe. The fort was in an area that wasn't really that secure. It wasn't as safe as Roanoke Island. It didn't have the advantage of having water all around it and an easy escape route to the ocean and to the surrounding rivers. So Lane's crew had left for a reason. They had pissed off the locals and tensions were escalated to the point that a small war broke out between the two sides. Sending a group of civilians back with limited food, supplies and weapons, not to mention a lack of soldiers or men-at-arms, as opposed to Lane's company who brought mainly fighting men, would have been a recipe for disaster and, and would have in most cases been a death sentence for the colonists who chose to settle there. There's been English pottery found at Site X and artifacts from the time period, but like we've seen before, this could have been brought there through trade. It may have been found or taken there at a later date by another group of settlers or explorers. The pottery found is very common and was made right up until the 19th century. The question remains, were they desperate enough to attempt to live there? Did the relationship change between the locals? Maybe they just saw them as innocent colonists that needed the help. Maybe they differentiated the two groups. Maybe they saw them as genuine colonists, mostly unarmed men, women, and children, as opposed to Grenville and Lane's expedition, which was mainly made up of soldiers and fighting men. Or maybe it was just a simple stopover while a more suitable settlement was found. Maybe they saw it as a relatively safe haven that they could get their bearings and recuperate while a more suitable permanent location was found. And who's to say maybe the Native Americans in the area didn't bother looking for them there, or knew that the site was abandoned and never bothered sending scouts out. Who knows? Any one of them could be true. Could be could be true. So that's pretty much the 
conspiracy section over and done with. A little fun fact, the tree with the inscription crow carved into it was located three miles from the settlement. It wasn't located close by like a lot of the accounts seem to suggest. Before we get on to the next section, there's one more thing I would like to highlight about the state of living conditions. Another reason it was so hard to gather food and survive where the colonists landed was due to the worst drought in 800 years. Climatologists and archaeologists found that an an extreme drought happened in the same year as settlement attempts, the years of 1587 and 1589. Unsurprisingly, this had a pretty devastating knock-on effect to the tribes and the locals. If the settlers couldn't produce food because of a drought, there's a very, very high chance that the Native Americans couldn't either. So growth rings on bald cypress trees revealed that it was the worst growing season out of the entire 800-year period. This also backs up what the Croatan and other tribes in the area had feared about their food supplies. Alright, enough about that. Let's move on to the myths and legends section of the podcast. This is part three. During 1937 to 1941, a series of mysterious inscribed stones were found around in the Dare County area. The stones tell of the journey of the missing colony and ultimately what leads to their misfortune in the years following White's return to England and their deaths. The stones are claimed to be written by Eleanor Dare, Virginia Dare's mother and the members of the Roanoke colony. There have been a total of 48 stones found so far, a majority are seen as fakes or modern-day hoaxes. Brunner University has studied and catalogued the stones and have found a common narrative to the account. Pretty much all of the stones in the collection are personal messages that appear to be from Eleanor Dare to John White, her father. The story on the rocks outlines the events of 1591-1603. The survivors move from Roanoke Island to the Chattahoochee River Valley, modern-day Atlanta. A man by the name of Lewis E. Hammond in 1937 claims to have found this first stone near the Chowan River. This leads to the second stone that was supposedly marked the site of a mass grave. This leads to an extensive search for more stones. Curious thing about this is there was a further 47 stones found after the first stone, but the other 47 stones were found after a reward was offered for more information on the stones, which unfortunately damages the reputation of what might be the only legitimate stone, if any at all. All of the other stones were eventually traced back to a Georgia stonemason named Bill Eberhard. By 1941, all the stones were discredited as hoaxes. So it looks like old Bill pretty much produced a whole bunch of fabricated stones to cash in on the reward, more or less. The only stone in the collection that may be authentic is the first stone. It is different from the rest due to its linguistic content and by a chemical analysis that was undertaken on it. The stone is still up in the air as being 100% genuine, as it cannot be proven or disproven not to be. For some more information on the Dare Stone, I'm going to read an excerpt from the Brenai University's website, Brenu.edu. Brenu.edu. The famous and some infamous Dare Stones have been a part of Brenai University lore since the late 1930s. It's a collection of a large number of engraved rocks that emerged at the height of the Great Depression proposed purporting to solve the mystery of the lost colony of Roanoke. A group of settlers on the island off the coast of North Carolina that disappeared without a trace in the late 16th century. Although most of the stones are generally regarded as artifacts or artifice, the first remains of the great 
interest to historians and archaeologists. It appears to be a message from one of the colonists, Eleanor White Dare, to her father John White, the colony's governor, who returned to America from a three-year trip to England to find his daughter, son-in-law and granddaughter missing along with all the others he had left at Roanoke. The stone, regarded by most authorities as the only Dare stone, surfaced in 1937. California man found it while driving through the Carolina coastal region. He delivered the 21-pound rock engraved with strange markings to the History Department of Emory University. Through a curious series of events, the stone wound up in possession at Brenai, thanks to the curiosity of Emory history professor Haywood Pierce Jr., who was also vice president of Brenai and the son of the school's owner and president, Haywood Pierce. Conflict of interest there. Pierce Sr. agreed when Emory would not to acquire the stone and foot the bill for further inquiry into the, its authenticity. After the Pierces advertised that they would pay a reward of any other stones with strange marking, Brenner's collection grew, and the process of unraveling the mystery became more complex. So let's have a look at the contents of these stones. Lewis E. Hammond, a California man that claimed to have been traveling around the country with his wife, finds a large stone with the inscriptions on both sides by the eastern bank of the Chowan River on the 8th of November 1937. Lewis takes the 21-pound, 9.5-kilo stone to Emeraud University in the hopes that someone there can help interpret the message inscribed. This is what the inscription read. This is what the inscription read. The first stone has the longest inscription that tells the story of Eleanor and the colonists. The inscriptions read, Aeneas Dare and Virginia went to heaven, 1591. Any Englishman show this rock to... John White, Governor of Virginia. Father, soon after you go for England, we came here. Only misery and war. Two years above, half dead, these two. Years more from sickness, being 24. A savage with a message of a ship came to us. Within a small space of time, they become frightened of revenge and ran. All away. We believe it was not you, soon after the savages said spirits were angry. Suddenly they murdered all, save seven, my child and Aeneas. My child and Aeneas too were slain with much misery. Buried all near four miles east of this river upon a small hill. Names were written all there on a rock. Put this there also, if I, if a savage shows this to you, we promised you would give them great Plenty Presence, E-W-D. Interesting account. It could be real, it could be fake. The language is obviously written in Ye Old English. I was reading the translated version from the Ye Old English, as that is pretty hard to fucking read. There could be little clues in there, in there as they say. Aeneas and Virginia were killed. They're all but seven were, were killed by the natives. This also factors back into the seven survivors that were enslaved by the Eno tribe. So maybe maybe this rock is telling the truth, or maybe whoever wrote it had knowledge of this information. However, it is very curious. It does allude us to little clues that all of the theories we've looked at so far do contain. It gives us a general location where the bodies might be buried. It also fits with 
where the second dare stone was found at, a, at the supposed site of a mass grave. It does give us some juicy little clues to follow, but it's still very vague. If it was a modern day forgery, this could be the purpose to fool people. If it was written by Eleanor Dare, it may have been written in a hurry. Maybe she was recalling the most important facts that she could remember or thought that were that were important and were trying to re- leave some record behind for a father to find, as obviously there's limited space on a rock face. It's widely agreed that the message is from Eleanor White Dare to John White, telling him what has happened to the colony. Several professors at Emerald University, one of which a man named Hayward Pierce Jr., we will look at that connection with him in a minute, went with Hammond back to the location of the stone. The exact spot couldn't be confirmed, but Pierce Jr. takes Hammond's word and believes he's a credible witness, announcing the find on November 14th, 1937. He publishes the find in the May 1938 issue of the Journal of Southern History. This is a quote from him. The authenticity of this stone, he wrote, can never be fully and finally established without further corroborative evidence. So Pierce Jr. stands by his claims, urging that the spelling is consistent of Elizabethan language. Curiously, he also mentions that the narrative the stone tells is consistent with Stracy's account of a supernatural motivated massacre where the survivors had fled up the Chowan River. So, little links, little connections back to every one of the, the main theories. I did find an interesting excerpt on ancientorigins.net in an article titled The Dare Stones, Hoax or History of the Lost Roanoke Colony. It's by Caleb Storm. There's a very interesting excerpt down the bottom of the article. <clears throat> Under the heading was the Dare Stone a hoax. Today the Dare Stone is considered to be of a little historical value. For understanding the Roanoke colony and is generally thought of as an elaborate hoax. But since 1941 some people have also come forward defending the stone's authenticity. The other stones were largely dismissed as fakes but the original stone is still considered by some scholars to be likely genuine. As recently as 2016 Ed Schrader, a geologist and president of Bruno University took a closer look at the type of stone used for the inscription. Breaking apart a sample taken from the stone, he noticed that the interior was much lighter color than the weathered exterior. The interior was more lightly covered than the inscription as well. The original inscription made into the rock would have been much lighter compared to the weathered exterior. The fact that the current inscription is darker than the interior suggests that the inscription has aged, perhaps for several hundred years through the darkening of its surface from weathering. Although such inscriptions can be made to look artificially darker with chemicals, this would have been difficult in the 1930s. The fact makes it more likely that the inscription on the stone is a genuine 16th century artifact. Interesting. Nonetheless, through geochemical analysis has not been made on the rock, and nothing has been found that confirms the inscription as being a 16th century origin for certain. Additionally, more recent epigraphic analysis of Elizabethan scholars does not reveal anything that makes the rock obviously a hoax. However, there are some aspects of the inscription that do appear inconsistent with the time period or with the writing of Eleanor Dare. These include certain word choices and the use of initials EWD to sign the inscription. 
When use of initials was rare in the late 16th century, another problem that skeptics point out is the use of the Arabic numerals. So there you go. Interesting. There has been some speculation that Pierce Jr. used the stones as a way to promote the university and to gather funding. It can't be confirmed or denied, nothing against the university, but his father was the vice president or the president of the university, and he did have a stake and a reputation in it. So next up, we have the White Doe. This legend slash myth takes place after White returns to England. I don't think we need to go back over the details of that. It's been done to death. So this legend has been a very popular one for many, many years, and it involves the fate of Virginia Dare. If this legend is nothing more than that, it is a very unique and moving tribute to the first European born on North American soil. The story goes that after the settlement of the second colony, White's colony, Wanchese, you remember him from the previous parts, Wanchese had become fearful of the English and saw them as a threat. He meets with another local tribe and plots the destruction of the colony. Wanchese leads a surprise attack on the settlers. The colonists are forced to leave. Mantillo, also from the previous episodes, he's probably my favourite character in all of this, gathers the colony and helps the settlers escape, leading them to his tribe. Eleanor Dare carves the intended destination onto a tree. Her, Her husband is lying dead of an arrow wound, by her feet and she desperately holds on to the baby Virginia. If that was true, why didn't she carve the Maltese cross, the agreed-upon distress signal? John White would have instantly known that they had left under duress and had to leave pretty quick. She only carves Coral Toan, which if she had enough time to carve that word, when arrows were flying around her, it stands the reason she could have done a little cross on top of it. Maybe the tribes had clued onto this by this time, who knows? There are varying different versions of the story. The basic backbone of the story is the same. The start of it, the escape at the start of it, is a little different from version to version. So another version tells more or less the same story. The native, hostile natives attack the Roanoke colonists. The only difference is, is this part here. Chief Manteo, returning from a fishing expedition, saw the raid in progress by using a secret tunnel he was able to lead all the inhabitants safely to nearby canoes. An all-night trip down the Palmoco brought the group to Manteo's village at Hatteras. The colonists were accepted into the tribe as brothers and sisters. So a minor detail, but a detail nonetheless. Makes you wonder where the tunnels come from and the canoes. That would have been a lot of canoes for a hundred and something people. Unfortunately, not all of these settlers make it, and some of them are killed in the attack. A decent number of them make it out alive and are now living in peace with the Kraltan. Virginia grows up to be a beautiful maiden. Her natural virtue and grace had made her an example to everyone around her, North American and European alike. As she grew up, she started to attract the attention of many suitors. Some of the young men she had attracted were the young noble Okisko and a very jealous sorcerer Chico. Chico makes the first move and offers his hand to the young Virginia Dare. Unfortunately for Chico, Virginia isn't impressed by his advances and refuses him. Chico is outraged at this offence and conjures up the dark arts and places a curse on Virginia that turns her into a snow-white deer. The mysterious deer wanders around Roanoke 
She is often seen walking around sadly through the ruins of the old colony built by her people, wandering through the decayed and overgrown houses and buildings. Not long after, the story had spread to all of the tribes through the area. All around knew of the sad tale of the beautiful snow white deer. Okisko knew something was up. He was aware of the deer and had figured out that the white deer had first been sighted around the same time as Virginia had gone missing. Okisko quickly found out who was behind this and had figured out this mysterious deer was his love. He gets help from a friendly sorcerer where he learns how to break the curse. He learns how to make a magical arrowhead made from the mother of pearl oyster. This will lift the curse of his beloved Virginia. At the same time, Wanchese too heard the stories of the elusive white doe. Unknown to Wanchese, he didn't know that this deer was Virginia. Wanchese vows to kill the deer to prove himself as a warrior. I think he's done enough damage in this tale at this point, but anyway. He uses a special silver arrowhead that had been given to him by the Queen of England when he was there with John White. Both men tracked the deer for several weeks, not knowing of one another. Both had their reasons for finding the doe, and both swore pledges, one to return her back to human form, and the other to kill the Snow White Deer. As the legend goes, both men came upon the white doe at the same time on the same day. They both spotted the deer drinking from a pool in the forest. Wanchese saw his great prey, and Okisko saw his great love. Both men readied their bows, selecting their special arrows. They knocked the arrows to the bowstring, taking aim at the mysterious deer. Both men drew back their bows and prepared to release their arrows at the creature. Wanchese and Eskiko both released their arrows at the same time. Both the arrows hit the deer in the heart at the same moment, striking the white doe. Akisko's arrow undoes the curse and Wanchese kills the white deer. Wanchese flees the island in fear after he sees the body of Virginia Dare. Oskiko picks up the body of his dearly beloved and carries it to the ruined fort and buries Virginia Dare at its center. Soon after her death, a grapevine springs up at the site of her death by the pool. The grapes are sweeter than any other grapes that have been tasted. The juice of the grapes are as red as blood. The grape is called the, is called the Scuppernong and is used to make the first wines in North Carolina. It's a very beautiful and poetic, poetic end to America's oldest mystery. There are many things going on in that story. There may be fragments of truth to it, but for the most part, it is mostly a good tale and one that has had many alternative versions. So next up on the myth and legend list, we have the Cora tree. Not the crow tree, the Cora tree. In 2006, a writer named Scott Dawson put forth the idea that there is another tree on Hatteras Island that bears a faint carving or inscription that says Cora. He suggests that the tree might be connected to the missing colony. The tree has for a long time been the subject of a lot of local legends and myths. The legend tells of a witch named Cora that lived in the area. Dawson has connected the inscription back to the lost colony. He thinks it might have been another message from the settlers intended for White and his crew to find. The message supposedly means that the colonists left Croatan Island to go settle with the Kori tribe, also known as the Korain, on the mainland. There has been no indication or suggestion that they were going to live with a witch. The inscription on the tree is pretty much impossible to date, as has been out in the weather for centuries, aging and collecting a lot of dirt. There is a similar story that connects a witch to the tree, 
but it has nothing to do with the colony. I found this on Island Press, islandfreepress.org. The Coratree, a Halloween-worthy local legend. As the story goes, in the early 17th, in the early 1700s, a slight woman and her baby, whom she has never been seen without, arrived in Frisco. She managed to build a crude hut for herself and the child away from the village. She was quiet and did not socialize. People wondered, people wondered why she needed so much privacy. Rumors began to circulate quickly and often, as you can imagine, about her and the possible bastard child. Uh, that obviously was a big thing back then. Being only a short time after the Salem witch trials, it didn't take long for rumors of sorcery and witchcraft to become the general consensus of the, of the villagers. After all, she had touched a cow and just days later it dried up and quit producing milk. Then there was the boy that teased their baby, sticking out his tongue and contorting his face. He suddenly became very ill shortly after and almost died. Not to mention Cora always had an abundance of fish, and the fishermen were suddenly not catching fish. She had to be a witch, or just incredibly unlucky. All this gossiping and finger-pointing would have probably remained just that, being we are in the south and southern hospitality and all that, but a tattered, busted ship named, a, named the Susan G. arrived. Hatteras is no stranger to tattered, busted ships arriving. We are the graveyard of the Atlantic, and we got that name honestly. However, the Susan G. B. was boarded by Captain Eli Blood and his crew of ruffians, sea-worn sailors and ex-slaves from Barbados. Captain Blood was a long-time native of Salem, Massachusetts. He pronounced himself an exemplary student of all the finest New England traditions, self-proclaimed himself a witch hunter, and decreed himself a defender of the people, you know the type. He immediately set himself up in the middle of the town and began hobnobbing, hobnobbing and gossiping with all the other hobnobbers and gossipers. His crew, however, preferred to set up camp and miss the solitude of the desolate beach while they awaited their owner to approve the repair of the ship and send money. After hearing all the stories of child and animal illnesses, storms and wrecks that were all apparently Cora's fault, it didn't take long for the good captain to also become suspicious that Cora was a witch. Then, as if on cue, the body of a local man washed up on shore, supposedly. He had a twisted look of terror on his face as if pleading for his life. His hands clasped together as if in prayer and the bloody numbers 666 carved into his forehead. The most damning evidence of all was the presence of small footprints surrounding the body and leading off into the woods towards Cora's hut. Uh, the plot is thickening. This strengthened Captain Blood's resolve that Cora was indeed a witch, and it was his duty to save these good people of Frisco from the misfortune the witch intended. Cora was a witch, and he knew just how to test her. Being from Salem and a veteran of the Salem witch trials, he gathered up an angry mob, and they marched through the woods to Cora's hut. They smashed through the crude door, grabbed Cora, snatched up her baby, took them both to the middle of the town near an old oak tree to perform the first test. He took out his knife, he tried to cut her hair, just as he had suspected. The knife didn't cut her hair because her hair was stronger than the wire of a rope. Next, he binds her hands and feet and throws her into the sound water. She didn't sink, but floated to the top of the water. There was only one test left. The captain took out his ceremonial witch-hunting bowl, filled it with water and pricked his finger, letting a drop of blood fall into the bowl. He instructed three of his men to do the same. They obliged. He then stirred the water and blood vigorously, mixing it into a froth. 
He gazed into the bowl, satisfied with the outcome. He instructed the other men to do the same, and confirmed what he saw, the face of Korah and Satan. Well, how the hell would he know what the devil's face looks like? Unless he has seen it himself, which also would implement him as being some type of warlock. Korah's fate was sealed. As all the men agreed, they had seen the same as the captain. With the entire mob of villagers stunned and awed, Captain Blood tied Korah and the baby to an old oak tree in the middle of town. The captain and his men hurry, hurriedly gathered kindling and branches at the base of the tree and Korah's feet. She was to suffer the usual fate of witches for the day to be burned alive. Captain Blood was lighting the torch and setting his course straight toward the dry kindling when some of the local villagers led by the local captain Thomas Smith began to protest that Korah should be taken to the mainland and tried in a proper court of law. Remember that southern hospitality we spoke of earlier. Well, it doesn't just allow for innocent people to be burned alive. No doubt some of those that testified against Cora of their own poor fishing when she sunkered them with her superior fishing skills were probably starting to feel a little guilty. Captain Smith grabbed Captain Blood's arm just as it was about to touch fire to pyre. Suddenly, the sunny sky filled with storm clouds, thundering, rumbling low. Captain Blood had had enough as he shook his arm free of Captain Smith's grip to proceed with the plan of saving the villagers from this evil vixen. Court of law be darned. Justice will be served. Just as he shook free Smith's grip, the sky opened with a clap of loud thunder and a bolt of lightning directly hitting the tree. Everyone was thrown to the ground, loud ringing in the ears, and thick dark smoke filled the air. When the smoke cleared, senses returned, and as the villagers composed themselves, they noticed Cora and the baby were gone. The rope still hung on the branches of the splintered burnt tree, and the kindling was untouched. The trunk of the tree was ripped open with a big burnt heart-shaped hole, emblazoned in the exact spot where Cora had been tied with her baby. Only the large capital letters... C-O-R-A remained. This would be a nice story to shrug off if the tree wasn't still standing proudly in all her majestic glory in the heart of Indian town Frisco, in the middle of the Snug Harbour Drive in the Brigand Bay community. The road splits around the old southern tree, southern live oak tree, as a testament to the legend with a large capital letters Cora carved into the trunk. But could that carving last hundreds of years? Yeah, very interesting. Make of that what you will. Uh, there's probably some truth to, it, to that. Or it could just be a good folktale. That also sounds like it happened quite a quite some time after Roanoke. So that kind of disproves Dawson's theory. If it did come at a later time, then obviously that was not intended for what. It just so happened that someone called Cora carved their name into the tree in a similar area. So that concludes the Myths and Legends section. It is time for a few conclusions as to what befell the lost colony of Roanoke. It's also time to put this tale to bed once and for all. So let's have a look at the most likely outcome. And that is the remaining colonists integrated with local tribes. This is the obvious and most likely choice. As soon as contact had been lost with the colony, this theory was the first one that most people went to. John White believed this to be true. And from what he found at the fort, or lack thereof, didn't see any reason to judge otherwise. Integration may have begun as early as 1586. It really depends on the desperation, the physical state of the colonists, and the circumstances they found themselves in after John White had returned to England. 
a million different things could have happened to them. Over the course of three podcasts, we have looked at the most common, the out there, the strange, and even the paranormal explanations to what might have happened. So let's say this theory is the correct one. It is hard to tell a definitive timeline or an exact year that integration may have taken place. It's generally agreed upon that the missing colony may have assimilated into local tribes around the year 1605. It may be a lot earlier or even a few years later. No one really knows for sure. 1605 is about a decade later and I don't think they would have survived unless they had joined a tribe. If the colony split up into smaller groups and joined different tribes, they would have assimilated to the point that European clothing, weapons, supplies, food would have all been used up completely. As time goes by, other European identifiers would begin to disappear and the colonists would adopt Algonquin clothing, food, culture and language. The more exposure they had with Native Americans, the more they would become them, partly out of convenience and partly out of necessity. They also might have reached a point where they resented English ways and customs. They might have blamed the English for bringing them there. They may also have felt abandoned by white and the English aristocracy. They may have felt betrayed. They may have just been angry. Assimilation may have been a form of rebellion or resistance against the the crown and the motherland that ultimately left them to die in a foreign land. It is curious to note that once someone from a European background lives with Native Americans for a sustained period of time, even if that person has been taken against their own will or enslaved, the person is very unwilling to go back to a European way of life. There's a few examples of this scene in later centuries when the Comanche used to take European settlers and adopt them into their own tribes. Even if they were slaves to the Comanches, they were very reluctant to go back to the Western way of life. As in the case of Cynthia Ann Parker, who was taken by the Comanche when she was a girl, she had a pretty rough life. She was rescued by the Texas Rangers when she was an adult. She was taken back to a civilized life, only to return to the Comanches who had captured her. This is seen time and time again. Many other tribes had very similar experiences. So there was something about the Native American way of life that seems to gel well with a lot of people who aren't familiar with it. Maybe that's a, maybe that's the way we should all be living, or maybe that's a very euphoric, utopian way of looking at things. Either way, they seem, seem to be onto something. So on the other hand, like we saw with Mantillo and Wanchese, more so with Wanchese, he was not eager to go back and live in England. The reverse is true. He saw European society as destructive and a threat to his own people's survival. It wouldn't be too far-fetched to say that a European person that had assimilated into Native American tribe more than likely probably wouldn't go out of their way to seek reintegration into European society. The same is true for any descendants they might have. They'd be in no hurry to seek out their English relatives or even other English settlements in the area or North America more broadly. In my opinion, this is most likely what happened to the missing colony. However, even if we arrive at this conclusion, it brings up a whole new set of questions. Which tribes did they assimilate with? How far did they go? How long did they wait for white? And how long did they take to integrate? How many survived to assimilate? And who stayed behind and was lost to history? The Croatan are the most likely candidates for assimilation, given their close proximity. 
Even today, the people of Hatteras Island are widely regarded as the descendants of the Croatan. Today's Roanoke Hatteras tribe claim ancestry of both Croatan and the Lost Colony, mainly through mixed ancestry. So is there a genetic legacy that can be traced back to the first European settlers? This question floated around for many years until 1880, when state legislators Hamilton Macmillan proposed a radical new theory. He claimed the Native American community of Robeson County had surnames and linguistic characteristics that were directly tied back to the colonists of Roanoke. This convinced North Carolina legislation to grant tribal recognition to the Robeson County community in 1885. From then on, they were identified as Croatan. In 1911, the tribe requested a name change, agreeing on the Lumbee decades later in 1956. There have since been other tribes linked to the colony, such as the Katawaba and the Kori. There are a few connections made here with the Kori. That was one of the tribes that was proposed in Stracy's account to be one of the destinations of the colonists. There were even reports of European-looking natives in the years following the disappearances. Several reports make mention of blonde-haired, pale-skinned, grey-eyed people among Native American tribes. Begin to surface as early on as 1607. Roberta Estes, a computer scientist, has founded various DNA analysis and genealogical research organizations to investigate the genetic links to the missing colony. She started the organizations back in 2005, which continue to this day. It's no surprise that trying to get reliable DNA data can be very difficult given that many centuries have passed. Autosomal DNA is unreliable for this reason, so Roberta Estes tested for Y chromosomes and mitochondrial DNA to gather more reliable data. Evidence is hard to gather because no one has found any bones to test. Only people who claim to have European background can really be tested. There are varying reports on the DNA. Some sources say living descendants have been found. And as of 2019, no reliable data has been found. The television series In Search Of claims there has been some European DNA found in the local population who can trace their ancestors back hundreds of years. But then again, it is a fitting end to the missing colony. It wouldn't be consistent with the history if the answers to this enduring mystery were so easily solved. To this day, the mystery continues. So time for the final part of the show. A quick look at some of the strange and weird disappearances related to the word Croatoan. Most famously of these is Amelia Earhart. I mentioned on part two of the Croatoan mystery that the Croatans believed in spirits, especially earth and nature spirits. So maybe these modern disappearances have something to do with it. When the word Croatoan appears, people have a tendency to disappear. We're going to start off with an object and not a person. In 1921, an abandoned ship ran aground near Hatteras Island. All the crew had vanished, and on the last page of the logbook, the word Croatoan was written. I couldn't find much on about the logbook entry. The closest thing I could find was an account from 1921. I got this from the nationalparks.org. The legend of the ghost ship, Carol A. Deering. The best mysteries are those that may never be solved. When the Carol A. Deering was discovered in 1921, its crew vanished. Its hull ran aground on the treacherous rocks on Diamond Shoals. Speculation run wild, the speculation continues to this day, and no satisfactory explanation for the crew's disappearance has ever been proven. I do like ghost ship stories. They're very creepy, but they're also very 
alluring for some reason. So in August 1920, five months after the five-month schooner was discovered abandoned off the coast of present-day Cape Hatteras National Seashore, the Carol A. Deering set sail for Norfolk, Virginia. In tip-top shape with an experienced captain and a crew of 10 men bound for Rio de Janeiro with a cargo of coal. The ship departed on August 22nd, and although Captain William H. Merritt fell ill a few days later and had to be replaced by a hastily recruited Captain H.B. Wormel, the ship delivered its cargo on schedule and set sail to return in December. A lighthouse keeper named Captain Jacobson aboard the Cape Lookout lightship in North Carolina sighted the vessel bound for its home port in January 29, 1921. The Carol A. Deering hailed the lightship, and an unidentified crewman reported that the ship had lost its anchors. Captain Jacobson took note of this, but was unable to report it due to his radio being out. He would later describe the crew of the Carol A. Deering milling around suspiciously on the foredeck of the ship. Yeah, interesting. Two days later, on the morning of January 31st, C.P. Brady of the Cape Hatteras Coast Guard Station spied the schooner aground and helpless on Diamond Shoals, its sails still set and its lifeboats missing. Rough waters kept surf boats from reaching the wreck until February 4th, when C.P. Brady's initial suspicion proved correct. The Carol A. Deering was abandoned. There's very many theories on why that ship went missing. I couldn't find anything definitive to say that the word Croatoan was recorded in the logbook. Still has become a part of the mythology around the Carol A. Deering. If it's true, the word Croatoan appears at another disappearance. So next up, we have Ambrose Bierce, the horror author, Civil War vet, and poet born in 1842. In 1913, Ambrose went on tour of Civil War battlefields. He traveled through Louisiana to Texas. From there, he travels to El Paso and crosses into Mexico. He joins up with the legendary Poncho Villa while Mexico was in the middle of a revolution. He joins his army as an observer and disappears not long after. The word Croatone was carved into a bedpost in the last room he stayed in. He was never heard from again. He was 71. Interesting. That's the second disappearance in modern times related to the word Croatone. Next up, we have the curious case of stagecoach robber Black Bart, 1829-88. Bart was an American career criminal born in England, but he sounds like a nice criminal. He was regarded as a gentleman bandit. He was known as a bit of a poet. After his robberies, he would leave behind poetic messages. Bart got caught and went to prison. He was sent to San Quentin for six years. He was released early on good behavior in 1888. But prison did take a toll on his health. During his time in prison, he used to write messages and words in his cell. One of these was the word Croatoan. So he's released from prison. He leaves his old life behind. He moves from Nevada and vanishes off the face of the earth. Wells Fargo had be, had pursued him for his crimes against the company. They track Bart to the Vasilla House Hotel, where the hotel clerk confirms that Bart had been a guest. He had checked in, then disappeared from there. Also interesting connection, this is a guy that was born in England that disappears in America. Is there a connection here, or is that just a random coincidence? So next up, we have the world-renowned poet Edgar Allan Poe, 1809. 
Most of you will know Edgar Allan Poe as an accomplished poet, writer and editor, famous for his poetry and short stories. Towards the end of his life, Poe was found, and this is a quote, delirious and in great distress in need of immediate assistance. He was rushed to Washington Medical College on the 3rd of October. Poe was admitted to hospital in someone else's clothes. He wasn't in any state to explain how he ended up this way as he wasn't coherent for a sustained period of time. His physical condition was not promising. In his current state, he called out the name Reynolds the night before his passing. There is no info on who this Reynolds might have been. Poe's last, last words are reportedly meant to have been, Lord, help my poor soul. He is also reported as muttering the word Croatoan. He died on the 7th of October, 1849. So he doesn't exactly disappear, but his death is shrouded in mystery. He's brought to the hospital in a delirious, incoherent state. Stands the reason he didn't put himself in that state, and it is still a very odd set of circumstances. So this brings us to the last, but certainly not the least. Amelia Earhart, the aviation pioneer and explorer. She's probably one of the most most famous of all missing people. Amelia was born on the 24th of July, 1897. She's most well known for being the first female aviator to fly across the Atlantic solo. She was ambitious and driven, setting and breaking records in whatever she did. She also paved the way for equality in aviation and many more fields including forming a female pilot organization, the 99s. She went through a lot in her short life, not only battling harassment, being a pioneer in the aviation worlds, and paving the way for women's rights, but also battling sickness. She worked as a nurse during the 1918 flu outbreak, becoming sick in the process and suffering from ammonia and sinus issues. So Earhart and her co-pilot Fred Noonan set out to fly around the world in 1937. There were a lot of up and downs, technical issues, and a lot of breakdowns. The last place they are seen, the last airfield the pair take off from, is Lai in Papua New Guinea. The last report they make is from Nakamanu Island. After that, they disappear. It is reported that Emilio wrote Croatoan in her diary before she went missing. That could also be any time after she left and not specific to the hours or days before she went missing. I went through the diary pages that were available online, but I couldn't find the word Croatoan specifically. It is possible. It is in there somewhere. There are a few words that look very similar to Croatoan, but I can't say for sure. It was very hard to decipher the cursive writing. Someone who's better at reading cursive writing than I might be able to distinguish the words. The connection is interesting nonetheless. That's the fourth missing person case we've seen associated with the word Croatoan, and they all involve people born in the 1800s. Interesting connection, or maybe just a coincidence. So, final thoughts. Does this word conjure up a spirit or a form of negative energy, or is it all just one big coincidence? Has the word Croatoan become synonymous with disappearances and missing people? Has it become a code word for the missing and the lost? In the case of Amelia Earhart, was this a coded message? She wrote Croatoan, knowing that she was going to get lost, or did she fear that she was going to be lost to the plane crash where they captured by the Japanese? Has the word Croatoan become a code word for those who disappear off the face of the earth? This also makes you wonder why these people don't just write, we're having trouble, 
if you don't hear from me, this is what's this is what's going to happen. So are there more mysterious forces at work? Is there a psychological aspect to all of this? Maybe the mind plays tricks when it's exposed to that kind of pressure. Who knows? Or maybe they are deliberately being thrown off course by supernatural forces. We will probably never know. And that concludes part three of the Croatoan mystery. And that is the end of the show. As always, it's a long show. It's very detailed. So thank you to everyone who made it to the end of the show. If you'd like to support The Truth Tank, there's a few things I need you to do. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Google, Spotify, YouTube. Head on over to the Facebook page, like and follow it. If there's someone you might know that might enjoy The Truth Tank, tell them about it. Tell strangers on the street, people on the bus. It's the best way to help The Truth Tank grow. Download as many episodes as you can, share them around. It all helps in the end. A lot of work goes into this show every month, and I like to try and bring the best quality I can to the listeners. So once again, thank you everyone who listened. Thank you everyone too who subscribed to the podcast and to the Facebook page so far. Keep it up. So coming up on the next show will be the Truth Tank's first ever Christmas special. This will be the final show of 2020. I'll give you a hint. It involves a biblical figure, and it's not Jesus. So look out for that one. That one will will be out on Christmas. Once again, thank you very much to everyone who listened. I am the Tank. This is the truth. May the truth be with you.